baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. The framers put it right there in Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. Congress is the branch of government that has the power to declare war. But of course, the situation has gotten a bit more complicated since the founding. There hasn't been a formal war declaration from Congress since World War II, and after that, most military engagements have been carried out by the president with only limited oversight from Congress. But now, with tensions between the U.S. and Iran escalating, some members of Congress are beginning to push back, including a few representing districts right here in the Bay Area. I'm Keith Menconi. This is KCBS In-Depth, and today on the program, we're going to take a look at how the way America declares war has changed over its long history, and also how it might be changing right now. We're going to start off with the most recent sign that Congress could be getting more assertive. That comes in the form of the National Defense Authorization Act. That's the military's budget bill. The House's version was passed earlier this month. Now, slipped into that $730 billion budget is an amendment that directly challenges the president's authority to use military force against Iran. There is a lot to unpack there in that statement, so I called up Connor O'Brien. He's a senior defense reporter with Politico working in Washington, D.C. He started off by explaining that the National Defense Authorization Act, first and foremost, is just a big old defense policy bill. It's been passed every year for nearly six decades, uh, largely bipartisan. And basically, it, out, it does outline the, the defense budget, you know, a $700 billion plus defense budget, and it prescribes a lot of defense policy. In that process, a lot of provisions were added this year to kind of limit executive power on the international stage a little bit. One of the big ones was uh, this Iran proposal which basically would restrict the president from taking military action against Iran unless Congress authorizes it or unless other uh, circumstances uh, allow for it. And it also, as I understand it, says explicitly that authority that was granted by resolutions following the 9-11 attacks to uh, grant the president authority to use military force in various countries at the time it was intended to fight al-Qaeda, but it's been used in other conflicts since then. There's always been some ambiguity as to exactly what authority is being granted there this amendment would say explicitly that authority does not extend to conflict in Iran. That's correct. So what we're talking about is the 2001, what's called the Authorization for the Use of Military Force, or AUMF, as it's been known. Uh, there was only one uh, one lawmaker who voted against it at the time that it was passed in the wake of 9-11. That was uh, Barbara Lee from California, a progressive member who's actually been pushing this Iran effort now in recent weeks. 
And, you know, uh, members on both sides of the aisle have expressed, you know, in the years since it passed, and as we've seen, it used as the legal underpinning for a lot of conflicts around the world, not just Afghanistan, but uh, counterterrorism operations in Yemen or, say, in uh, in Africa. A lot of a lot of consternation in both parties that it was it's too broadly worded, doesn't really fit the security situation, but really hasn't uh, a political movement hasn't really kind of coalesced yet to figure out a replacement for it, even though. Uh, Members like Barbara Lee have been pushing to repeal it, and that's gaining some traction. And so what this measure does is it essentially there, – there was a lot of uh, concerns among – particularly among Democrats that the Trump administration could potentially use this as a legal justification for attacking Iran. And that's – and it does, as you said, rule that out. And, you know, it's striking to me that there was indeed some bipartisan support here for this amendment – we had as key backers on the one hand, Representative Ro Khanna, Democrat from the Bay Area, another Bay Area connection here. But uh, another key backer is Matt Gates, who is a Republican from Florida, very conservative district. And in addition to that, we had about two dozen Republicans for, who voted for this. So definitely not a purely partisan move. And as you say, going back to 2001, directly after 9-11, Congresswoman Barbara Lee cast a very lonely vote there. So this was, at one time, a very lonely position to take, checking the president's authority to make war decisions. Now we are seeing broader support. So what do you see behind that broader support at this moment? Well, I think there's some, I think there's some concern. Uh, you know, as you look at the, how the debate has shaped, obviously Democrats are very concerned about the potential for a war with Iran after the United States pulled out of the Iran nuclear agreement. And uh, there have been a lot of provocative action on both sides. When Iran shot down a, a U.S. drone, a U.S. Navy drone, and uh, tr- uh, President Trump uh, called off retaliatory strikes uh, against them, I think, there's, I think there's some fears on the Democratic side that a conflict could break out. And, you know, I think in both parties, there are members... Uh, who do want, you know, to reclaim the congressional prerogative of authorizing military force. You know, I think that's you, there's some kind of more libertarian minded Republicans who don't like the fact that this this 2001 war authorization is being used for all these myriad operations that were never even dreamt up. You know, when 9-11 happened, engagements we never realized we'd be in. And, um, you know, this is another potential conflict that a lot of lawmakers think, you know, there should be there should be a vote on, there should be a debate on. So let's dwell on that Bay Area connection for one second. As you said, we have Ro Khanna, who represents areas in the South Bay, and Congresswoman Barbara Lee, who whose district is centered in Oakland. Uh, they are key players in all of this. What do you see as their role going forward to be? You know, when, when it comes to progressives in, in the House, Rokana and Barbara Lee stand out. Uh, uh, Barbara Lee is is an appropriate is a member of the Appropriations Committee, uh, which has a lot of power to dictate how the Pentagon spends its money. And Rokana is actually one of the few really prominent progressive voices on the House Armed Services Committee. So he's kind of stakes that out as one of his uh, key issues. You know that and repealing the AUMF, uh, getting the United States out of uh, assisting the Saudi Arabian intervention in Yemen, civil war. Uh, those have been really progressive's top uh, issues on defense. That and you know trying to 
limit the amount that's spent on the military. All right. And just to re-emphasize this point, of course, this is the House's version of this defense spending bill also needs to pass through the Senate. And we've been hearing from Republican senators that they don't much like this amendment that limits the president's authority to commit force in Iran. What have we been hearing from them as to why they oppose this amendment? It's been opposed by kind of the the foreign policy and defense establishment of the Republican Party. Their basic argument is this is a quick-developing situation in the Middle East, uh, Iran, is committing more destabilizing acts. And what this would do is tie the president's hands and it, it sends mixed signals is what they argue and that it would allow, you know, it would basically encourage uh, more of this destabilizing behavior from Iran. And once again, that was Connor O'Brien, senior defense reporter with Politico in Washington, D.C. The next step, he says, will be for the House and Senate Armed Services Committees to get together to try to hash out the differences. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth, our weekly deep dive into the major events and trends shaping news here in the Bay Area and beyond. Today, we're discussing Congress, the presidency, and who ultimately has the authority to commit military forces. So we've been talking so far about what's up for debate right now at this current moment, but let's broaden the focus right now to look at the context that this is all happening within. For that context, we're going to invite onto the show right now Chris Edelson. He's a professor of government at American University's School of Public Affairs. Now, he's been thinking about these issues for a long time. His latest book is Power Without Constraint, the post-9-11 presidency and national security. And so to start off this portion of our conversation, I asked him to just take us back to Civics 101 and walk us through how the framers thought war-making would work in the U.S. after the Constitution was made. It is very clear the framers of the Constitution did not want a king. They were familiar with that model. They had engaged in a revolution against it. The, The first a uh, national document, the Articles of Confederation, allowed for, there was no executive branch because they were so worried there would be a king. When that didn't work, they created a constitution, but they made clear that the president in the new constitution would not have the powers of a monarch, and they divided powers that had belonged to the British king between Congress and the president. When it came to war power, Congress has the power to declare war, and the framers were unanimous about this. They all understood, even People like Alexander Hamilton, who believed in a strong executive, um, they all understood that when it came to starting war, that would be Congress's decision. Uh, The president did have one power. Um, The president's the commander-in-chief of the Army and the Navy and the militia when it's called into service. But the people, the, the branch that calls the Army and the Navy and the militia into service is Congress. So the president would have power once Congress declared war. There is one exception. This is not in the Constitution itself, but... When the framers debated how to assign the war power, they did say Congress will have the power to declare war, but the president should have the power to repel sudden attacks. So I think it's pretty clear that the framers anticipated in an emergency, if there's no time to go to Congress, the president could act first and then, you know, get approval later. But apart from that emergency scenario... The framers anticipated it would be up to Congress to decide whether to go to war. Right. And so for the most part, with a few 
important exceptions. Uh, all the way up through World War II, it worked pretty much the way you described. You know, Congress declared war, the president carried it out. But then that kind of changed really dramatically with the Korean War. Uh, there, a war actually never was declared. Uh, in that case, Truman famously referred to it as uh, a police action, I think was the term, correct? That's correct. Ultimately, yes, that's right. They, the Truman administration described it as a police action. I would describe that as a euphemism. It was clearly a war. There were hundreds of thousands of U.S. troops involved, significant casualties. Uh, troops who were sent were given uh, combat pay. Uh, insurance policies that applied in time of war were honored. Everyone understood this was a war. Calling it a police action was just an attempt to get around, around the clear congressional, uh, sorry, constitutional problem. Truman understood that he couldn't do this without congressional approval. And there were some members of Congress who understood that as well. Unfortunately, not enough to act. And I say unfortunately because this created a precedent. When Truman showed that he could simply act and go to war without congressional approval, other presidents followed suit. And for the past 70 years, we've had presidents of both parties basically doing the same thing, not on the same scale. We've never had a, a unilateral action on the same scale as Korea, but we've had presidents ordering the use of military force without congressional approval uh, since Truman. All right, let's skip ahead now to the post-9-11 era and discuss the authorization that was passed directly after those terrorist attacks. Now, this was the authorization that we discussed with political reporter Connor O'Brien earlier in the program, but let's dig into it in a little bit more depth here. So I, I find this really interesting because this is an example where Congress did weigh in. It was consulted but the ultimate authorization that was passed ended up being something of, of a blank check for the president. It led to commitments not just in Afghanistan, but in many other places as well later on. Yeah, excellent point. You framed the issue really well because that is how it came to be seen. It's clear that Congress didn't mean it that way. So 9-11 happens, terrible attack. It's, it's terrifying. I mean, I, I was in New York that day. It was really scary. Fortunately, not down at the towers themselves, but I mean, this was... This was really scary. Terrorism is supposed to be scary, and it is. Congress acted really quickly. Three days later, Congress passed uh, an authorization for the use of military force, not a formal declaration of war, but since the beginning of the country, the Supreme Court has said that Congress has, in its words, the complete war power. It can authorize a formal war by declaring war or a more limited action through a statute uh, authorizing the use of military force. That's what Congress did. And in the, in the authorization, in the statute, Congress said the president can use military force against the people who attacked us. They didn't, they didn't name them, but it was clearly al-Qaeda, or people who are harboring them, which would have been the Taliban. So the president did not have to rely on independent authority. Congress authorized the use of force. However, the president wanted more. President Bush had asked Congress for broader authority. Congress, to its credit, under very difficult circumstances, said, sorry, no. We want you to defend the nation, but we're not going to give you a blank check. So they didn't give the president what he asked for. However, the president, there was a, a secret memo written at the time that no one found out about until years later. The president believed he could go around Congress. A lawyer in the Department of Justice named John Yu wrote a memo, September 25, 2001, saying that it's nice that Congress gave you this authority. You don't actually need it. You can do what you want. The power to use military force is for the president and the president alone. The president uh, used that authority in other areas as well to justify uh, torture, the detention system at Guantanamo, warrantless surveillance, many of these actions in violation of federal law. 
So, yes, the war against uh, al-Qaeda and the Taliban was authorized by Congress. And then the next year, 2002, Congress passed another law authorizing the war in Iraq against the Saddam Hussein regime. Both of these statutes, however, were used to justify uh, broader actions that Congress had not authorized, both the use of military force, for instance, against ISIS, a group that didn't exist when the September 11, 2001 uh, attacks took place, um, and, to, and to authorize other actions like warrantless surveillance and torture that I mentioned. So, I mean, let's linger on that point for a second, though. So we're talking about years and years later, after the 9-11 attacks, after these original authorizations were made, this resolution was used to send U.S. military force after ISIS, something that we yep. didn't even know about in 2001, didn't even exist in 2001. That's right. So That's right. tell us how that worked exactly. So in the summer of 2014, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, ISIS was uh, very dangerous. It's still a dangerous group, but very dangerous at the time because it was uh, amassing territory. It was hold, held a lot of territory in Iraq and Syria, and it was advancing on Baghdad at the time. Uh, there was a massacre of Yazidis, a religious minority in Iraq, and some had fled to the mountains, and there was concern that more would be massacred. And so President Obama not unreasonably said, hey, this is a dangerous group. We should do something about it. However, instead of getting congressional approval, he simply ordered the use of military force on his own, never clearly explaining how he justified it, but seeming to rely on the 2001 authorization for the use of military force. So to me, the better course would be to go to, to, go to Congress. Now, to be fair, ultimately, President Obama did. He went to Congress in, I think it was late 2015, and he said, after military operations had already been going on for more than a year, and he said, I would like you to authorize war against ISIS. Okay, so he asked Congress, that's, that's the right way to do it. Congress, to its discredit, did not act. It did not speak one way or the other, and the Obama administration, now the Trump administration, has simply continued to act. So a big part of the story here since Truman's action has been congressional abdication. Congress simply hasn't done its job. When presidents have taken action, they haven't weighed in. Um, they've just allowed presidents to take, their, to, to take over the war power, which belongs to Congress under the Constitution. What's interesting about this is it shows that the Constitution is not self-executing. You can have whatever words you want on paper. They don't mean anything unless each branch of government gives them force. And in this case, Congress has not, and the result has been presidents have been able to increase their power. I want to remind our listeners before we move on that uh, we're speaking today to Chris Edelson. He's a professor in the Department of Government at American University in Washington, D.C., and we are speaking about Congress's increasing willingness, or at least seeming willingness right now, to check the president's war-making powers as tensions escalate between the U.S. and Iran. I want to talk about a couple of other conflicts that have cropped up over the last decade or so and ask where the president found authority to act or not to act, thinking of both Libya and yep. uh, Syria. What yep. is the basis, or what was the basis in Libya, and then what is currently the basis for U.S. involvement in Syria? Right. Excellent question. So President Obama, spring of 2011, uh, responded to Qaddafi's threat to massacre civilians in Libya by ordering these military force without congressional approval. The Department of Justice wrote a memo concluding mostly based on past practice, the idea that other presidents since Truman had done similar things, they said, yes, President Obama can do this. 
as long as it's in the national interest to do so, and as long as it doesn't rise to the level of war, and also as long as it doesn't last for more than 60 days. Um, in my view, their argument is conflicts with the Constitution. They're, they're right that other presidents had done this. The fact that other presidents had done it doesn't necessarily make it legitimate. But that was the basis for the argument. Other presidents have done this. This president can do the same thing. Um, in Syria, uh, President Obama in 2013 was prepared to do basically the same thing he had done in 2011 with Libya. He said, I'm going to use military force against a dictator, against Assad, a brutal dictator without, without question. This time, though, members of Congress, about 150 members of Congress, signed a letter saying you can't do this. The Constitution says no, and he backed off. However, President Trump did go ahead with his action, basically what Obama had threatened to do. He responded to uh, reports that Assad was using chemical weapons. Uh, the Trump administration launched two military strikes, um, and their justification was basically the same as what Obama relied on in Libya in 2011. Uh, other presidents have done this. Uh, we're not using ground troops. It doesn't rise the level of war. Congress doesn't have to authorize it. I don't think that argument is any better for the Trump administration than it was for Obama, but that's the justification that they give. Uh, let's turn our attention back to Congress uh, once again. Why is it that Congress has been so reluctant to exercise this authority over the military that it has? Uh, is it just a matter of Congress doesn't want to own these military conflicts if something goes awry? Uh, there's two main reasons, I would say. One is what you said before. Um, they don't want to get stuck in something if things go wrong. There was a, I remember in 2014, before the midterm elections, there was a Republican congressman, I think Jack Kingston from Georgia, who was, who was interviewed, he was quoted in the New York Times, and he, he supported the effort against ISIS um, and wanted the president to get approval from Congress. But he said, some of my colleagues would prefer that the president goes alone because then if something goes bad, we can blame him for it felt like we don't need to get involved. This can be the president's problem, and then that creates risk for him. So I think that's one reason. The second reason I would say would be partisanship. If you have, for instance, and this explains the switch from Obama to Trump. In 2013, 150 members of Congress tell President Obama, you can't go to war against Syria. The vast majority of them were Republicans, about a dozen Democrats, but the rest are Republicans. What's different about Trump's attack against Syria? He's a Republican. The same Republicans who criticized Obama were supporting Trump. So the Madisonian theory of the Constitution is that each branch of government will check the other, and they will be guided by their own concerns about, their, about protecting the, the powers of their branch of government. Partisanship gets in the way, though. A member of Congress may look at a president and not, instead of saying, is the president acting appropriately, they may say, is this a president from my party? And if so, I'll support them, even if maybe they're not acting constitutionally. So, of course, when the framers, to take a different perspective on all this, when the framers made the Constitution, conceived of all this, they were in an age of cannonballs and muskets and uh, armies that could only move as fast as people could walk, essentially. Now we're in the age of ballistic missiles that could start a war with the click of a button in less than a span of a day. We have aircraft that can go around the world faster than the speed of sound. So very different technological capabilities. Wars occur at a very different pace. Is there not something to the argument that we need a certain amount of nimbleness in responding to threats and the presidency as an office simply is a more nimble institution than Congress? This is such an excellent question. I appreciate, very glad you raised this. Um, I think one of the things that accounts for the change in presidential power is the change in technology. 
with the advent of the nuclear weapon, there were people who made the argument that you're making now. They said, uh, a famous presidential scholar, Richard Neustadt, said the nuclear age has effectively amended the Constitution. In this context, we need one person who can act quickly. To me, that's a deceptive argument. It sounds plausible at first glance, but if you think about it in more detail, it's not really. It's true that things have changed. At times have changed. The framers of the Constitution couldn't have anticipated nuclear weapons or aircraft carriers or planes or any modern technology. But as Justice Robert Jackson said in a 1952 Supreme Court decision, to paraphrase, he said the framers didn't anticipate modern times, but they knew what emergencies were, and they prepared for that. And so the idea that a president can act to repel sudden attacks that principle works just as well today as it did in 1787. If you have a president who needs to take action, if, if a country is threatening the United States with an imminent strike of any kind, nuclear or conventional weapons, it doesn't matter, the president has the same power now that the president had in 1789. The president can act first without congressional approval. That's, that principle applies to any form of technology. Mm. All right. Well, to round out the program, uh, last topic that I want to broach with you do you think that we are in something of a moment where Congress is likely to flex its muscles and reclaim some of these war-making authorities that it, it has? I mean, we've already talked about a number of the different ways that many Congress members are taking steps in that direction, but do you expect that to continue? I have to say my best assessment right now is that, and I'm sorry to say this, uh, is that there's no way under the current system to set limits on presidential power. Um, especially with this president. Um, And the reason I say that is because you at least need a majority vote to get anything done, but you probably need a supermajority to check the president, either through impeachment or through some other process. So I don't think there's an effective way to check this president or other presidents for that matter. You could get a Democratic president. president. I wrote a book arguing that President Obama violated the Constitution by using military force in Libya and against ISIS. President Obama is not the same kind of president as Trump, but it's a violation is a violation. It's a serious problem. I don't think the current Constitution allows for effective checks on presidential power because the Constitution depends most centrally on Congress setting those limits, and Congress has simply proven to be not up to the task well, uh, to avoid ending on that note, let's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> where do we go from here then? If if Congress yes. isn't the check, what what role might folks concerned about America's use of power on the international stage? What role might they look to to assert some authority and 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 get the that voice back into the system? And I won't, don't mean to be depressing about this. I, I'm just. Yeah, I think it's important to describe the reality of what's happening. Constitutional failure doesn't mean there's nothing we can do. As I mentioned before, James Madison rightly said, the people are the primary check on government power. We can take action as people um, in a number of ways, through elections, through protests, through speaking out, through calling for changes to the law, to the Constitution. There are lots of things people can do, and it, it's, you know, it may seem like a tall order. Um, all these things are, are really daunting. There are things that we can do, and I think people can get engaged, and many people are getting engaged. Um, and ultimately, if we want to change things, we can. So if I'm right that the Constitution is failing, that doesn't mean all is lost. That just means that we've got you know, work to do. 
All right, a lot to chew over there, a lot to consider, but we are going to have to call it a day. We have been speaking today with Chris Edelson. He is once again a professor in the Department of Government at American University in Washington, D.C. Chris Edelson, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you for all your questions. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Remember, you can find past editions of the show online. Just head on over to kcbsradio.com. That's going to be it for today. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Manconi. Thanks for listening. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program for all news 740 and FM 106.9 KCBS. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did.